Hello and welcome to 2021 and welcome to 10x9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10x9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran and 10 years ago in 2011, Padre Gautuma and I started 10x9 in the Black Box in Belfast. And we love it. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website 10x9.com. We'll be staying on Zoom until it's safe to return to our home venue here in Belfast, but we plan to keep a presence on Zoom to stay in touch with our new audiences across Ireland, Britain and further afield, so we'll keep you posted. Now we have three stories on this podcast for you. Our first was told way back at Halloween when the theme was, appropriately enough, fear. Here's first-timer Catherine Kay. We dreamed of escaping the typical British summer of rain, followed by showers, followed by more rain, by renting a light uh, character-filled sheet for a week's respite in sunny rural France. On a cold, wintry January, we leafed through brochures. Yeah, that's, there were lots of things like that in 20 years ago. Um, every holiday rental we saw looked absolutely perfect. We were at that early stage of parenthood where you still think very much, you're still very much pretending that a child does not impede your life at all, simply enhances it. We hadn't admitted to ourselves that every decision we took from now on would be scrutinized for dangers and vetted for possible hazards. We still perused each glossy page of French holiday homes with the eyes of childless 20 somethings. As long as the place had a pool to laze by and roomy enough fridge for several bottles of wine and other local delicacies, well, shall we be fine? Seven months later, this cavalier attitude to Jeep choosing had led us and two friends that we convinced to come along along the way to arrive at a rickety, dark and uninviting artisan's cottage. It had been a long and tetchy journey. There had been many many peace stops along the way. Our daughter was at that critical stage of toileting, but her need to go, unfortunately, rarely coincided with my own need to pee, which at eight months pregnant was also frequent and often urgent. No, we hadn't factored our expanding family or our expanding stump, my expanding stomach into our holiday rental decision-making process back in January either. After the aforementioned stilted journey, we arrived at dusk instead of mid-afternoon. The earlier heat and blue skies that had met us at Cherbourg had broken into a fiery thunderstorms around Le Mans. By the time we reached the cottage, a dense summer drizzle had descended. The moment I entered the house, I had a sense of foreboding. It was ancient, yes, but not in a quaint, romantic way. It felt as if the century's inhabitants hadn't quite left, but merely soaked into the stone walls along with the damp. My dream of a a stone-flagged farmhouse with French sunbeams streaming in faded rapidly. What we entered that drizzly August evening, exhausted and frazzled, was far from what the brochures had promised. The kitchen was functional and clean enough. The owners had kindly left a four-page document on the table with rules, regulations and helpful suggestions for troubleshooting when inevitable problems occurred. Electricity outage, toilet flooding, that sort of thing. As if by way of an anticipatory consolation, they had left um, a bottle of the local red um, and had been placed on top of the document. 
but I was in no mood of reading rules and I headed off to explore the rest of the house. Off to the side of the kitchen was what was had been aspiringly referred to in the literature as the playroom. It was in fact a dung-coloured dung lean-to annexed onto the kitchen by two steep and treacherous looking stone steps. Watching my daughter Tita as she navigated these, I gingerly followed her. It quickly became apparent that the muted colours and earnestness of the French toys held no interest for this English toddler. My daughter was used to the garish colour plastic of the early learning centre. Books about rabbits called Fifi and beautifully crafted wooden draft pieces held no interest for her. Once the contents of the toy box had been emptied out onto the threadbare rug, she moved on. I lingered a moment longer, puzzled at the room and its contents, grappling through my fudgy pregnant brain to work out what it was that was wrong with the room. The toys, it seemed, were untouched, sorry, were old yet new, from at least a decade ago, and yet somehow untouched. Whatever the issue, the room was less than inviting, and I left as quickly as I could, as, as my large frame allowed, following my toddler upstairs. At the centre of the old house was a wooden spiral staircase. The steps were worn and uneven from centuries of footfall. A quirky Gallic electrician had placed ill-thought-out light switches halfway between, between floors. The master bedroom was in the, in the attic space, um, and it wasn't really any bigger than the, the other bedroom. The room was dark, and although the bed was clean and uh, smartly made up with a quilted eiderdown, the damp in the walls emitted a musty smell. It was clear that any visions I had of streaming morning sunshine would be impeded by a complexity of wooden shutters and heavy curtains at the small window. A wooden cot sat squat in the corner of the room. There was something inexplicably sad about the bright and bold bunny painted on its end. I decided immediately and without proper reason that our little girl would sleep instead in the newly acquired travel cot we had brought with us just in case. Somehow my tired and grumpy husband managed to squeeze it into an already cramped room, heavy with mahogany furniture. However, after this inauspicious start, the holiday progressed well enough. I'll admit, I endured rather than enjoyed, but I put that down to the fact that combining heat a fiercely independent, often truculent, toddler, a rotund and breathless mother, and unfamiliar sound, uh, surroundings fought with hidden dangers. Well, it wouldn't be the ideal combination anywhere. The other adults accepted the house's flaws in the daytime and imbibed just enough uh, local rough red wine in the evening to be oblivious to the nighttime eeriness of the ancient wooden stone structure that I noticed. Our daughter woke nightly with night terrors, blank-eyed and inconsolable. And although I hadn't remembered these happening to her before this holiday, our well-thumbed parenting manual assured me that it was perfectly normal. In the daytime, she seemed no different than usual, spending the time alternating between angelic and exuberant and outraged and demonic, you know, normal toddler behavior. Everyone was, but me was surprised and disappointed then when the final day of the holiday arrived. We were due to leave at 1 p.m. It was, of course, a glorious summer's day, possibly the best we'd had. 
As the other adults busied themselves with packing and cleaning, I attempted to catch the last rays of the morning sun out by the pool, keeping one eye on our daughter who was playing by the edge of the water. Earlier in the week, she had acquired three wind-up toy snails from a flamboyant market stall holder. Her chubby little fingers had finally worked out the mechanics of the winder and she sat delighted with herself. And she, she sat delighted with herself watching the vivid escargot wobble across the patio. Suddenly I was touched by her delicate, vulnerable beauty. She was togged up in her favorite tweeny swimming costume, her pale skin slick with sunblock. The blue float belt that she'd been sporting all week was cast aside on the concrete pool edge. I closed my eyes against the bright Dordogne sunshine, secretly relieved that our week's stay in this strange and unsettling house was nearly over. My eyes felt heavy. The previous night's precarious bathroom visit down the slippery stairs and then having to soothe my daughter when I, on my return had finally caught up with me. I was exhausted. My eyes were closed for less than three, maybe four minutes, but when I opened them, my daughter was longer there. The patio spot where she'd been happily playing was void of child and of the snails. I lumbered off the low sun lounges into a sitting position and called her name. It was then that I spotted the cerise pink of the tweenie costume in the water, no, beneath the water. On the sparkling surface of the pool, three brightly colored plastic snails bobbed. I added her name at, the, at this time as I maneuvered my pregnant body out of the low unforgiving sun lounger, making my way as quickly as possible to the other corner of the pool. My mind had a vision of her setting the snails in the water, then with excited focus, following them step by step into the pool. Only when she stepped off that last step into the one meter shallow end, would she have realized that she was in over her head. By the time I got halfway round the pool edge, I could see she was moving. I shouted random names now, my husband's, my friend's, anybody's, not just hers. I could see that she was not just moving, but flailing. Her dark baby hair slicked back from her smooth face. Her eyes were wide open, long eyelashes curled right back. A split second, as I was trying to get close enough to her, her expression changed from serene to panic as she decided this was not okay. I willed her to keep paddling and keep her mouth shut, but she began to protest as she would have on land, her mouth opening and closing, taking in unwanted pool water. Looking back, it was probably only a matter of seconds before I reached her, but before I could bend my cumbersome shape over the water, a solid, reliable hand swooped down, gained purchase on a flailing sun-creamed limb and scooped up my little girl from out of the pool. My friend, hearing my cries, had rushed from the house and reached the pool before I could. Much spluttering and coughing and regurgitating water ensued. Then, as adults do, do we convinced the little one and ourselves as well that it was nothing more than a funny escapade, chasing snails. What a silly Billy. My friend and I exchanging only the briefest of glances, acknowledging what it might have been. Then a few short hours later, with bags packed and beds stripped, we locked the house and we placed the keys in the rusted letterbox by the gate. 
As I click my little girl into her, her car seat safely, I glance back up at the house. It looked perfectly normal now, perfectly pleasant in the sunshine, but the unspoken fear that still lingered there. I would never know what had happened within those walls. All I did know was how grateful I was that the house had not added another tragedy to its history on that, our last day. That's wow, Catherine, what a complicated and brilliant, intense story. Lord above, you painted so well. Um, I did <laughs> think when, it, when you sent that through that anybody who calls anything artisan, it's either artisan or it's a way of um, snazzing something up that really should have been burnt. And that was Podrick waxing lyrical on all things artisanal. Thank you so much, Catherine. And as it happens, Catherine makes a guest appearance on podcast 177 when her mother, Mary Johnson, told a story and Catherine is the child featured there. And if you want to see Catherine tell that story, if you're more of a visual person, it's on our YouTube channel along with all our Zoom events. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Next up is a 10 by 9 regular who's scattered throughout our podcasts. Paul Hutchinson told this story on December the 9th when the theme was connections. No animal was hurt in this story. Well, one was. Sorry. Kimchi is a very giving cat, especially in the morning. In the morning, she gives me the runaround, crying as if her ginger tail is caught in a mangle. And I'm never sure if she wants fed, cuddled or let outside. A strange cat, this one, sometimes preferring a cuddle over food, enjoys being lifted up and carried like a baby in your arms, all purrs and push paws, only occasionally puncturing the cradler's skin with a too vigorous scratch from her pointy, fierce claws. Kimchi is a very giving cat. Sometimes she leaves a present for me in the morning. A giant stinking cat turd, usually in her litter tray, occasionally outside of it, radiating my nostrils, making me want to gag as the cat catches in my feet, crying for something or nothing or both. And when I say thanks for the present of your poo to her, she does not get the irony in my tone because what I'm actually saying is I'm not grateful for this morning's smell from hell. We first set eyes on Kimchi at Ben Varden Animal Rescue Shelter when the family were on the hunt for a new cat. Our previous cat, Rosie, had run out of working organs and I had done the necessary and taken her to the vet to be put down. I was reluctant to get another cat, but the family were of another opinion. At Ben Varden, we looked at all the young kittens who, sensing they needed to put on a show to get out of their cage, were doing cartwheels and jazz hands to impress. We kept on looking, finally coming across a large sleepy ginger around three years old. She's a bit anxious, says the Ben Varden volunteer as we hold her. She's mostly lived indoors. The as yet unnamed ginger cat, soon to be christened Kimchi, allowed herself to be lifted into Joanne's arms and gave an understated performance of quiet purring. Joanne said this one, and that was that. And that was how kimchi, named after a type of Korean food and a drag artist, was born into 
our lives. Kimchi is a very giving cat. She likes to share her anxiety with us. And she does this by spraying her foul smelling scent like piss on steroids on our curtains, on our doors, on our bags sitting on the floor with shopping in them, on beach blankets and duvets, on freshly washed clothes. I would come into the kitchen all happy and be suddenly accosted in the nostril region with this heady stench, thinking, what's that smell? Does a bin need cleaned? Why not wash my pits? But we very quickly learned to reorganize and recognize and diagnose the source of this diabolical fragrance. I began to have second thoughts about this confused mog. Could we take her back? Would she be labelled difficult to live with and have to be put down, unable to shake off her stigmatising reputation? I'm difficult to live with and I don't want to be put down or sent away from the family, but I'm mostly house trained these days. More second thoughts, could we train her? Could we take her to a cat therapist? Was there a drug treatment? Could we have our sense of smell surgically removed? A friend in Canada suggested cat nappies. I don't know if such things exist. We eventually got a plug-in device for the wall, not her bum, that apparently emits some kind of good vibe smell for cats. Generally, I think kimchi is too giving. Too giving of all the wrong things, anxiety spray, morning shit, unconsolable crying. The family disagree. The family thinks she is part of the family. The family thinks she has had a hard life and they will look after her. When it comes to the cat, I think the family consider me a heartless block of granite, but they don't clean the litter tray. Last week, Kim Chi developed an ear thing. As you can hear from my description of her symptoms, I am not a trained vet. Her ear thing was a sore looking lump the size of a large grape, which seemed to be growing larger by the hour. Her ear was also growing balder by the day as she tried to scratch her infected itch. No jokes here about earwigs, please. And she had hissed at me like a riled rattlesnake when I accidentally touched her sore bap of an ear. The family were growing anxious at the obvious pain displayed by their cat. I was predicting a large vet bill. And I could also predict what was going to happen next. And lo and behold, I was delegated to take a closer look. I steeled myself and then slowly, gently explored the patient. It was a mess, red inside and out with a growing lump on her balding ear. Kimchi was not a happy cat. I tried to evade her teeth and claws as she wriggled to get free of my clinical investigation. A brother-in-law from a farming background was consulted. He said, no amount of cream would help. We had to make a decision, go to the vet or try some DIY surgery. I thought about the vet's bill and decided on the DIY approach. And so it was that Joanne gathered kimchi and an old black towel, held her paws firmly in place and waited for me to do the deed. Not a dirty deed, I had sterilized a needle. St. Francis, give me courage. 
St. Luke, patron saint of surgeons, come to the aid of my shaking hands. I approached the cautious cat, edged slowly toward Kimchi, beloved family cat, the cat that I could take or leave. She gave me a slit-eyed Clint Eastwood stir that would have stopped a lesser man, but I am made of granite. I could do the tough love thing because I was solid. I moved closer with my sharp sterilized needle. Closer, I can do this. A quick job and that will be it. I can do this. I can't do this. I couldn't do it. I confess, I do have some feeling for this molting ginger mess. I don't want to hurt her unnecessarily. I don't want to hurt her out at all. I don't want to hurt you, Kimchi. I said, give me a minute, and I walked away. And again, the cat me with my finger. I brought the sterilized needle closer. At that moment, I realized just how slender a cat's ear actually is. There's nothing to them. I could push this needle right through her ear if I wasn't careful. Maybe dangle a dainty Christmas bell from her piercing. I touch her sliver of an ear with the needle, just a touch, nothing. No growling, but also no penetration of the skin. I need to put more pressure on her ear. I'm sorry, kitten, I said to her under my breath. I walked away. I came back. Do it or don't. This is for your own good. Isn't that the phrase that has been used to justify a multitude of cruel abuses in life? I go in close again and I stick the needle in. The cat wails and struggles to escape. Joanne holds firm. I am putting on a brave face, but also, I also want to wail. I look at her ear. A small ooze of bloody brown liquid has appeared. Had I done it? I squeeze your ear and two things come out. Another trickle of ooze and a milk-curdling wail from kimchi. It didn't matter. I was done. I couldn't do any more. If it didn't work, it was time for the vet. I administered more cream on her oozing ear and we put her to bed, hoping in recovery for the cat and for us. I felt sick from putting on a brave face while inside I was quivering with fear and concern. It had worked. The next morning, Kim Chi was in much better form and the lump on her baldy ear was significantly reduced. Hallelujah. And the day after that, she was even more improved. She was on the mend. Hurrah. The family were relieved. The cat was relieved. And me, I had to reluctantly admit that I had more than just feelings of frustration for kimchi, that hurting her even for her own good was hurting me. And that we had a connection beyond the domestic drudgery of feeding, cleaning and opening doors. Or maybe the connection was strong because of those quotidian moments, those daily encounters. Damn. Connections can be a real pain. Thanks very much, Paul. My God, wonderful. Um, and congratulations to you. Paul, I'm kind of amazed. How... 
how can you hold, was it you or Joanne or both of you that held the cat still? Like, how can anyone hold a cat still? Well, we've done this before. So Joanne holds, holds her in a blanket and then I do the, you know, veterinary uh, training that I've, you know, done over many years. You know? uh, blanket is a clever way of doing it. Also saves you from scratches. <laughs> I'm sure. It's just awful though. I mean, you know, you're, you hope you're doing the right thing. And I it's know. Ah, uh, thanks so much. As always, Paul. Brilliant. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. We really, really appreciate it. Or if you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Now, here's our third story, and unusually, it has never been told at a 10 by 9. Conor McGuggan liked the theme of our event coming up on Wednesday, January the 20th. The theme for that is tea, but he can't join us, so he recorded this story and sent it in. So I'm delighted to give you a preview of our next event, and also to introduce first-timer Conor. It had an exotic taste compared to the tetley my mother drank, but aside from that, no big deal. Tea is tea after all. Ah, but this is Valerian root tea, said my housemate, as he topped up my cup. There's nothing better for stress. And stressed I was. It was the night before my job interview for a reporter's vacancy for a local newspaper. I graduated from the University of Ulster the year before, but was no further on in my quest to land my ideal job. My mind was awash with the previous chances wasted, but I was determined not to allow this to happen again. I set the alarm clock and jotted directions to the interview office. I had my best suit hanging in the bedroom. No alcohol. I would simply go to the cinema, then home to bed for a good night's sleep. Unbeknown to me, my housemate applied me with a profuse quantity of cannabis resin before we left, in the guise of a cup of said valerian root tea. He nonchalantly informed me of this as we entered screen four of the movie house cinema. I was annoyed by the revelation, but not worried. I agreed it may help me forget about the interview for a while. He was only trying to help, idiot that he was. The cinema is not the bastion of sheltered entertainment it's marketed as. No blame should be apportioned to the movie house for what occurred, but the location only facilitated the experience, burgeoning its intensity. Relax, urged my housemate, as the pre-movie trailer ended. Give it half an hour and you'll appreciate the high definition, and I mean high. I challenge anyone to relax at the juncture of delirium. Plummeting tennis balls is not a vision suited for respect. Nor is imagining you've plunged into a subsequent realm of white light, with no discernible dimensions or markers. You'll come round eventually, said my panicked housemate, as he checked whether anyone had noticed the commotion. I came round to pissing myself three times, or so I was convinced. It's sinister how the mind plays tricks like this when vandalised with an illicit substance. A struggle occurs between sanity and lunacy, lunacy usually the victor. You're led to believe you've lost control over your bodily functions, in this case my bladder. A clenched muscle can only be maintained for so long before the urge to release overwhelms and out it comes all warm and weird and down the trousers. My breathing started to fluctuate. A rapid increase followed by a lull, then another increase, every surge accompanied by desiccated lips and the gradual sensation my head was about to explode. Control your bloody breathing, pleaded my housemate, his hands on his head in exasperation. I couldn't. He grabbed me by the collar and warned me. If you calm your breathing, you'll calm your heart. This only induced further terror. I'd overlooked the possibility of a heart attack, and now here I was, faced with the irrefutable suggestion that I could die. 
No, no, he snapped. You won't die. You're having a panic attack. That's all. How would I have known? I can't presume it's as straightforward as telling someone they won't die. That would only remind them of the possibility. You see, in a cinema, when you're lying on your back, fighting for your pathetic little life, as hundreds gawp at your convulsing silhouette, you can't help but be embarrassed by being the subject of a mass voyeuristic vigil. I was so mortified I accepted death and waited for the light at the end of the tunnel. The light came, sure enough, but it was from the torch of the cinema ushers rather than angels. I rose from under the seats and was carried like Christ on the cross by two staff members into the foyer. Outside, in the fresh air, I decided I wanted to live again. But this could only be achieved by confronting my medical condition at the Belfast City Hospital. My housemate arranged an ambulance to transport me, minus the usual courtesy of a siren. This was an extravagant deployment of health trust resources, but to be fair to myself, I was unable to walk. I had no perception of firm ground or step movement. On arrival at A&E, I was placed in a wheelchair and left in the corner of the waiting area to stare at a wall. An hour or so passed before a stern-faced doctor called my name. Explain to me what's wrong and be quick about it, she demanded abruptly. This I found difficult to articulate without descending into what is known here as talking complete shite. Do you remember geography class at school, I asked. Bemused, the doctor said nothing. Do you remember the graphs, the peaks and troughs? What about them? Well, that's me. I'm going up and down, but the graph won't end. I wanted to convey to her the crescendo of sheer breathlessness and terror I was experiencing, how it would ebb and flow in the continual rhythm and how every time I thought it was over, it would begin again. The doctor stood up and pulled back the, the room divider. We'll run some tests on you and go from there, she said, before walking away at speed. The sound of her heels click-clacking on the floor made me painfully aware she had much more pressing matters to attend to. I sat in the reception for another few hours, aware the effects were subsiding, but not nearly fast enough for me to do anything other than wait. The ECG test confirmed I was in no serious danger, but they said I should only leave if I was accompanied by a friend or a family member. My housemate had long absconded, and I wasn't having my parents drive all the way to Belfast just to yap at me. If I was going to die, I would have been dead by then anyway. But it wasn't until 6 the following morning could I say with any confidence my heart rate and breathing had returned to normal. I received a text from my mother. Good luck today, son. You'll do great. The guilt and shame this caused prompted me to make my escape. I half expected security to follow me, but no one did. I never made the interview. I couldn't have. The brain and body were banjaxed. It was implausible I could summon a logical train of thought to enter into conversation with anyone, never mind a potential employer. Instead, I wandered contently along Elmwood Avenue opposite the hospital, wondering what might have happened if they hadn't tried the Valerian root tea. Another text came through. So sorry about last night, wrote my housemate. It wasn't even Valerian root tea. It was just normal tea with resin in it. I never did become a reporter, but I have matured and wised up. Now, as I sit with a cup of tea in the evenings, while the children settle down for the night, and we decide what to watch on Netflix, my wife will gaze across at me and ask, Do you need me to call an ambulance? The children don't understand this joke, but someday they will surely ask about it. And I will answer, Tea is tea. Don't believe the hype. Uh, Connor, thank you so much. I look forward to the time when you can join us in person. Now, if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, which is 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I can't stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. 
And if you have a story but can't make it to our live events, well, you can record it for inclusion in the podcast. Or, why not film yourself telling it on your computer, and we can feature you at a 10 by 9 I'm thinking particularly of our friends in Australia, where the time difference is just too extreme at this time of year. But hey, it's open to all. And that is pretty much it for this podcast for now. I am going to ask a small favour. If you enjoy this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating. And if you could maybe leave a short review, we would be so grateful. It helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed, and stumbled over by Paul Doran. So it's all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.